Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live.
Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor.
should have made that program less business. You know, talk to you again, didn't you? They were to speak to Franklin and holy, holy. Don't forget what we have our prayer of the morning coming up at the
Thank you, Peter, for having me. You've served as the pastor of New Dublin Presbyterian Church for about five years now. Describe for us what life is like in your congregation. Well, I would first say that I'm incredibly blessed to be there. Uh, it's a community that is deeply rooted. The church itself was founded in 1769, and one of my dear friends there uh, has lived in the same house for 82 of his 84 years. <laughs> and during that time, uh, of course, he has seen great amount of change. And so one of the things that I've learned from them is, is how do you move forward when the world around you is being transformed mm. so rapidly? And what they really taught me is it's the importance of relationships, particularly between older and younger generations. And so we have that wonderful dynamic. It's it's a mentoring, but it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to an older woman just the other day after the service, and this little toddler came up to her, and she said, what I love about this church is I have friends of all ages, <laughs> And the older woman smiled and said, that's what I love about it, too. And that's been incredibly inspiring for me. You are active in the Dublin Ministerial Association and in other ways in the community. What do you appreciate about living and serving in that community? When I think of our community, the farmer poet Wendell Berry often comes to mind, particularly this line. He says, the art of going is coming home before dark. And it's a community that that values where they are and who is around them. And there's, as I said before, there's a deep sense of rootedness Mm -hmm. there. I also want to say, however, that it's not a kind of inflexibility Mm -hmm. that is sometimes associated uh, with rural communities. Um, I think, rather, because they're so rooted, um, they can actually be more open to change. You said that one of the books you've written, Take My Hand, is something of a love letter to the church you serve. I really like the format for the book. Tell us why and how you put that book together and and what you hope to say through it. Uh, So each chapter includes a sermon that I did preach at New Dublin Presbyterian Church. And I also, my first year of ministry, kept a journal. And so I started noticing the connections between what I was preaching about and those that I was with on a daily basis. And so what the book hopes to do is show how a sermon is a conversation between a biblical text and also a life in in community. Mm -hmm. So it was a great joy to write that book. I I really do think of it as a love letter. Um, It's, I think, the other hope is that it will paint a picture of a a rural congregation, a smaller church, in a very positive light, um, which is perhaps not a message that we always hear. You've also written a book on the parables of Jesus with something of a twist. It's called Parables of Parenthood, Interpreting the Gospels with Family. It's a very personal and intimate and yet biblical look at the stories Jesus told. Why did you take this approach to understanding these stories? One of my favorite ways to interpret a parable is to notice how the gospel writers interpreted it. So particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find a similar parable that's really used in a different way because of, I think, the community that they were talking to. And so perhaps they make little changes or perhaps they put it uh, in a context with other 
examples of Jesus' teaching in order to highlight different bits. And so I started thinking about that and noticing the differences. And I'm thinking about my own life, which was undergoing the great joy of having our firstborn child come into this world and all that I was learning from being a father and being a husband and living in a community of faith. And so different parts of the, the parable spoke to me in ways that perhaps they wouldn't have otherwise. And I think that's the, the true gem of Jesus' teaching, is that it invites that, that kind of response. So the hope of, of that book is um, that it will have a, a much broader application than, than those, not merely to just first-time parents, mm-hmm. but that it will encourage other people to take the kind of knowledge of biblical interpretation and be able to readily apply that to their own life experience. Well, your sermon today is based on the gospel text for this Sunday from Mark chapter 3. Would you read it for us? Absolutely. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to Jesus and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is kind of a sad account in some ways. You can kind of picture in your mind Jesus' family members standing there. Yet just a few verses earlier in verse 21, Mark reports that his family sought to restrain Jesus because they thought he'd gone mad. What do you make of this exchange? You know, Peter, in one of your books, Living Loved, you have a beautiful reflection about Jesus from the cross in John and that exchange between his mother and the beloved disciple. And I think that you're absolutely right that the call here is for us to open up our circle of faith, um, to include people in our family of faith um, that are not just related to us through blood, but through belief. And so I, I think, I suspect that's what Mark is doing too, but it's, it's harsher in his gospel. And that's what I, I really picked up on. It, it's harsher because he seems to have you know, his whole life ahead of him. And that made me think about uh, what it's like to be a parent and, and to raise a child and that constant tension um, between, yes, you want them to grow up and become independent, but no, not really. <laughs> I mean, there's a refrain that I hear often is, oh, they grow up so fast. And that's a reflection, I think, of that difficulty that we have as parents. So that's what I was drawn to in the text. And what does that mean, then, for a community of faith in a similar dynamic? Andrew, we look forward to hearing your sermon, Go Church, Go. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Peter. It's been a great pleasure. And if you'd like to listen again to today's program or read or share a transcript of Andrew Taylor Troutman's sermon, visit our website at dayone.org. Or for a free printed sermon transcript, call us toll-free at 1-888-411-DAY1.
You were allowed to take the train alone from Long Island into New York City only after your 12th birthday. Brian sought to make this pilgrimage to pay homage to his beloved basketball team, the Knicks, in that great cathedral known as Madison Square Garden. But before he could leave, he was compelled to wait, fidgeting in the threshold of his front door, impatiently shifting his weight from one foot to the other as his mother fiddled with his jacket collar in a way most unlike her. Stalling, holding on, his mother reviewed details already covered, giving him last-minute advice he already knew. I can't believe you're 12, she said, in between checking and rechecking him for hat and mittens and an extra pair of eyeglasses. One minute ago, you were four and talking to the birds. Make us proud of your behavior. You need a new winter coat. Don't forget to call. Are you really 12? You better stop fiddling about and get to the station. I will assume that you have a clean handkerchief. Go. And she sighed. Go. Decades later, Brian Doyle remembered this as the dividing line between being a boy and being something else on the way to becoming a man. My own son is about two and a half years old, and he talks to the birds, wishing them a cheery, hi birdie, tweet, tweet, on our daily walks. On his own, he reaches up to grasp his mother's hand when journeying into new places. And he asks for both hands, both hands, before careening down the big slide at our church's playground. But someday, probably sooner than I'm ready, he'll be poised to head off on his own, making a pilgrimage to his dream. And my son comes to me. Bright-eyed and hopeful, will I listen to the earnest desire of his great, big, God-given heart? I know there comes a point when every caregiver must say, go. My own son could make this inevitable separation less painful if he was polite and courteous, patiently standing, stock still, enduring my anxiety as I fiddle with his collar and humoring me as I remind him of things he's already heard and, indeed, already knows. Might my son take steps on the way toward becoming a man with kindness and care for his old man? Surely that is the ideal, which begs another question. How could Jesus talk like that to his mother? While Matthew and Luke include a similar scene, Mark alone pulls back the privacy curtain and allows a glimpse into the family dynamics, including the rationale of Mother Mary. Jesus has already begun his pilgrimage, sharing his great big God-given heart and proclaiming the good news through preaching, teaching, and healing. But in verse 21... Mary, along with her other children, marches toward Jesus in order to restrain him. 
attempting to stall the inevitable separation of child from parent. Restrain is the same verb used to describe those who lay hands on Jesus in order to arrest him. Why does his family want to shut down his ministry? At the beginning of this chapter, we learned how the religious and political leaders were already concocting plans to kill Jesus. He had become a wanted man, provoking the powerful authorities to dangerous retaliation. His family, then, was staging an intervention. They were trying to save his life. His mother stood outside the house and called Jesus, believing she was beckoning him to a place of love. So then, how could Jesus talk to his mother like that? Despite their understandable, even noble intentions, Jesus does not need his mother to save him. Jesus is the Savior, the Savior of the world. He intervenes on his family's behalf, not the other way around. He intervenes on our behalf, too. Even if his sharp retort sounds jarring to our ears, perhaps we could listen deeper and hear something else. Every caregiver knows the goal is to allow children to grow up in order that they can become all God has called them to be. Yet every caregiver also knows it is much easier to declare no than sigh, go. It seems to me that restrain describes our fear, which under the guise of good intentions may well be in opposition to faith. Such fear confronts not only parents, but also churches, particularly those we might call mainline, probably those who listen to day one broadcasts. Now, I do not wish to sound rude, like I was back-talking my mother church. But let's be honest. All across our country, there are towering steeples that loom over increasingly smaller congregations. And there are many churches, about the size of mine, which are precariously close to closing their doors for good. But, at the same time, there are young people today who are poised excitedly in the threshold, ready to head off into the world, their hearts set on pursuing their God-given vocation. And like Jesus taught, this millennial generation values action, the doing of the will of God. They do not want to be told. They want to experience. They want to go. But too often, the mainline church has stood apart, curtly demanding that they come to us. We're your family, we cry. We know what's best for you. Or perhaps we've even tried to restrain them, preventing them from acting in ways we believe are different, abnormal, even dangerous. We think we are intervening on their behalf, don't we? And if we listen more closely, we can hear the fear in our own voices, 
church will never be the same again. Maybe that former way of being church is coming to an end. How much more important then to lift our great big God-given hearts and remember that resurrection comes only after death and that the life-giving spirit of God cannot be restrained. With such faith, we might discover that in the word go, there's not only fear, but also freedom. And not just for young people, either. Shortly after I became pastor, I came to learn how a certain director of graduate admissions at a veterinary school removed her horn-rimmed spectacles and dropped them unceremoniously upon the application lying before her, and then fixed a young woman nervously seated across from her large oak desk with a patronizing look. Perhaps, she began, you would best be served by considering a different career path. Later that day, this young woman would be found wailing inconsolably in a puddle of heartbrokenness on the tile floor of her childhood bathroom. But in that moment, she maintained her composure, though her nostrils flared involuntarily with a sharp exhale of anger. Not unlike certain large animals she'd been around her whole life, she'd grown up on a farm with a true love of horses, She learned the difference between Appaloosa and Andalusian when most children her age were distinguishing household pets. And she had memorized her A.B. Clydesdales. Her passion was not just a child's infatuation, but the deep and abiding focus that accompanies the truest calling. She'd always had that way with these animals, that touch that whisper, that look. She'd always had that gift which coaxes quiet, appreciative smiles from those in the know. Growing up, she drew plenty of these reactions from men and women in her church, some of the same people who pretended not to notice when she tracked mud from her riding boots into the sanctuary or read a horse magazine behind her Bible throughout the Sunday school hour. And upon learning about the rejection from the veterinary school, these same folks did not try and protect her, glossing over the stinging truth. They did not attempt to hold her in another safer, more realistic vision for her life. Rather, the parental figures in her church reminded her of the many other times They'd seen her fall off only to get back up again. These are the very same people who now take great delight in retelling that day in the admissions office. Now that she has graduated at the top of her class from that very same veterinary school. And now that she secured a postdoc surgical residency at an Ivy League university. They have loved to sidle up to her and ask if she might best be served by considering 
career path. Oh, how they love to do that. Yes, they love to tell the story, because even when her path was unclear, they had the courage in themselves to hold faith in her. Even now, when the road leads out of town, they love to see her galloping ahead, moving unrestrained into her bright dream. But most of all, they love that young woman and trust she carries something of them into her future. As she crosses the dividing line between being a girl and being something else on the way to becoming all God would have her to be, the brave saints in her mother church freely and faithfully say, Go. Just because something is uncomfortable, 
different or perhaps even dangerous. It, it may very well be what we're called to do. I guess the other thing I would say, Peter, is that it really helps when you have a community to help you with that discernment. And that's what I admire most about that little story that I told about my church, <laughs> is that, you know, maybe that young woman, um, you know, she probably had in the back of her mind that she, maybe she needed to let go of that dream. But she had people there that were around her um, that offered a different narrative. And at the same time, I think it was easier for them to let her live into that dream because they had each other as a support group, because they all saw the same things in her, and they could confirm what they felt in in the experience of other people in their community. We also wondered how Jesus could speak to his mother like that, but help us realize that she and his siblings were probably saying no to Jesus out of a place of love and perhaps of fear. You said every caregiver knows it's much easier to say no than go. And we do that also with our churches, many of which try to maintain the status quo when the world around them is changing dramatically. How do you think we should foster conversations about this kind of change in our churches? You know, I, I think the great allure of the word no is that it offers the illusion of control. I mean, it's a very definitive boundary. No, we're not going to do that. How then, in thinking about this dynamic um, between seeking to become all that God has called us to be, how can we change that into more of an inviting question? And that's difficult. I, I don't think it takes place overnight. I think it mm-hmm. takes place among communities that regularly practice listening to one another, trusting one another. And I want to say that it is a development in spiritual maturity. I'm reminded of Richard Rohr, who talks about the second half of life Mm -hmm. and how he knows certain people who have what he calls a bright sadness to Mm -hmm. them. It's because they know things are changing, and that often involves pain and grief, and yet they see the value in it. So maybe using language like that, inviting people to consider that, yes, you know, it's okay to be sad about these things, and yet... What else is happening to you? Andrew Taylor Troutman, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Peter. It's been a great joy. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wong. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever.
Eight churchgoers looking for a little morning inspiration. Well, listen to Morning Inspiration and the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
Jesus approached Jerusalem, saw the city, and wept over it. He said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem rejected Jesus, and 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. To reject Jesus is self-destructive for an individual, a city, a nation, or this world. Jesus wept for how close Jerusalem was to real, permanent peace, yet was so blind to it. Even when tens of thousands proclaimed him as the long-awaited Messiah, the nation missed it. Listen to me. Pray for your city and for America. Ask God to show you how you can make Jesus feel welcomed. Salvation from judgment may depend on it. This is Anne Graham Lott. Satan's methods, there's nothing new. Answers with Ken Ham, whose ministry is building a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati, Ohio. The Apostle Paul warned us about Satan's ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warned the Christians that Satan would use the same tactics he used on Eve in the Garden of Eden. And how did he trick Eve? Well, he created doubt about God's word, knowing it would lead to unbelief. Did God really say that? Satan asked Eve. You know, that's the same question many Christians ask today about Genesis. Did God really say six days? Did he really say worldwide flood? Did he really say death came after sin? One of the most effective ways to create doubt about God's word is by teaching evolution in millions of years. And Satan knows that if you can get people to question the book of Genesis, which is foundational to the rest of the Bible, then this doubt will ultimately lead to unbelief regarding the rest of Scripture. We need to accept God's words in Genesis and not let the devil use his own tactics to spread skepticism about the entire Bible. Can we really accept the book of Genesis as true history? Did Noah really build an ark to escape a flood? Solid answers are given in our 95-page pocket guide, and for your copy, all you have to do is call us toll-free and make a donation of any amount. 1-888-89-ANSWERS. Today's the last day to call and request the ARC guide. So call 888-89-ANSWERS or go to our website of answersoffer.org. This is Morning Inspiration on Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His critics are too long to live. He has done the impossible time after time. He has, out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He fed. Even before the 
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, it's Nation Talk. We'll talk your issues with our guest tonight, author and owner in bio of, of owner, author and owner, Wendy Floyd Reynolds. That's scheduled guest. That's tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Talk to You and Jam Radio. Hope to see you then. See you at a church near you. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Thank you. 